Hey, everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm speaking with E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport about their new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. It just came out March 22nd. EJ is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. I'm sure you know him also as a senior columnist for the Washington Post, a university professor at Georgetown University, and a visiting professor at Harvard University. He is also the author and co-author of several other books, including Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. Miles Rappaport is a senior practice fellow in American democracy at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School. He formerly served in the Connecticut State Legislature and as Secretary of State. Some of you may know him because he also served as president of Demos and of Common Cause. EJ, welcome and thank you for passing judgment with us. It is great to pass judgment with you. (laughs) And Miles, so happy that we could make this happen. Thank you for being here. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Let's jump right in and EJ, I'll go to you first. I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. And we'll get into the details of the book, but part of your case is built on the idea that we compel people in this country to do a whole host of things. We compel people to get driver's licenses if they want to drive, to get a vaccine. It used to be just if you want to attend school or now if you also if you want to go to work. We compel people to pay taxes if you want to live in this country and get government services. But it strikes me that there's something different about voting in the sense that you don't get something tangible in return, other than, of course, the argument that you get a better democracy. But those are things that ensure, for instance, it's safe for us to drive or it's safe for us to go to school or work. So can you talk me through why those analogies still work here? That's a great question. I just want to say at the beginning, a lot of people ask when you write a book with someone, uh, what was that like? And I just want to thank my friend Miles because we had a great time writing uh, this book together. There was one thing on that list uh, that we might add that I think is the most important metaphor to what we are talking about in the book, and that is jury duty. Um, you are compelled to answer a jury summons, uh, and sometimes you are compelled to sit on a trial that doesn't take a half hour or 20 minutes or an hour at most, hopefully, out of your day. Uh, It can take days and days and days out of your life. Why do we ask everybody to be eligible for jury service? Why was it one of the greatest victories of the civil rights movement when discrimination against black Americans on juries was ended, which, by the way, meant uh, that black Americans were required, along with others, to serve on juries? And that is because That was the way we guarantee equal rights. That is the way we guarantee every possible voice uh, on a jury. Uh, And so we believe that by uh, creating a civic duty to vote, by requiring everybody to vote, we will be living up to uh, what the uh, Declaration of Independence declared. They said that government uh, is legitimate only if it has the consent of the governed. They didn't say the consent of 66.8% of the governed, which was the turnout in 2020, which was a very high 
uh, level of turnout. They said the consent of the governed. We think all of the governed. We also think this idea, people ask the fair question, what problem are you trying to solve with this? One of the problems we are trying to solve with this is voter suppression. Um, And we believe that this is the game-changing idea to our voting wars, because under our proposal, um, the everyone would be required to vote, and therefore it would be incumbent on the people who write election laws and run elections to make it as easy as possible for everyone to do a duty they are required to do. The shorthand is that the best way to defend voting as a right is to acknowledge that it is also a duty. The last point I'd make, and I'm sure we'll talk about this some more, is there's real proof of concept. While this idea is unusual for Americans, it's been used in about two dozen countries, most uh, famously in Australia since uh, 1924. Um, and Australia has exceptional voter turnouts, 90%. Election day is like a party, as one of the voters uh, told the New York Times a few years uh, back. People take their duty to vote very seriously and they embrace it. And so we're not looking to penalize people, even though there would be a small, easily waived penalty. We're looking to create an ethic of participation. Uh, And that's what we hope universal civic duty voting will do. So many things to pick up on. Miles, I want to go to you next to follow up on something that EJ just said, which is that we're talking about the consent of the governed. And I guess the counter to that is, will consent of the governed who want to weigh in, in the sense that we know the founders made a decision not to make voting compulsory, even though they did make a conscious decision to have a representative system of government, knowing that not everyone would vote. So could you talk to us a little bit about why the founders decided not to take this route, but now it is the moment. Well, I really think that there are incredible advantages to having a universal voting system. And again, drawing a little bit from the Australia uh, experience. Uh, When Australia uh, took up universal voting, their representative turnout was, uh, went from 60% to 90% overnight. And for almost a hundred years, it has hovered around 90% turnout for every election. And it's not just the numerical. The question is about representativeness. So in, a, in the United States, the electorate is, generally speaking, older, whiter, richer, and more educated than the population as a whole. And so we believe, as small d Democrats, that you want a representative sample, a full representative sample, uh, in order to make the decisions about what laws we're going to be governed under and who's going to make them. So we feel like that would be a really, really important thing. And the other thing is to, to pick up on the point that EJ made earlier. I think that all of the institutions of our government and civil society would bend themselves to make this a successful experiment. So if I were a principal at a high school and every 18-year-old who was graduating were required to vote, would I make civic education be an important part of the curriculum? I think I would. And if Everyone had to vote Would I and our employer. Would I make it easy for people to do that? I think I would. So I really think that the issue here is how do we create a real culture of participation, not a penalty, but a culture of participation, which they have done in Australia and people really like the system as it is. 
Yeah, while the founders did not um, have uh, compulsory voting, uh, this idea goes way back to the beginning of the Republic. In the book, we note that the Massachusetts Constitution, which, as I recall, was written in 1780, explicitly gives the state legislature the power to provide uh, for compulsory voting. Uh, there were other forms of it early in the Republic. So uh, the idea isn't uh, at all alien to the American tradition. Um, secondly, one of the reasons we think this is important, and Miles alluded to this, is that if you look at our system now, uh, our elections are almost like a high-end dinner party where you have an A-list of likely voters, and those are the voters that all the political consultants and all the candidates pay lots of attention to. And then you've got these B and C lists of people who don't necessarily participate uh, all the time. And so you have a kind of radical difference uh, between those who are encouraged to vote and get a lot of electoral information, and yes, electoral propaganda, and those who are just go untouched by a campaign. In the book, we quote Kim Beasley, the former leader of the Australian Labor Party, whose dad was also in politics. So he talked about being at the polls uh, since he was a little kid. And he said, uh, you know, it's entirely true that voters who are brought in because of compulsory voting are not necessarily political obsessives like the first people who line up on election day. But he said, whenever you talk to those voters, the fact that they had a duty to vote made them engage in a serious way in the choice they were about to make. And so we think that calling everyone to the polls uh, is a way to invite every citizen uh, to engage in the political process, not in an obsessive way, uh, but in a serious way. You know, I want to add a quick visual example to that and then generalize the point if I can. Yeah, Miles, please go ahead. I ran in 11 elections for state legislature and for secretary of the state, and I went door knocking. And I was given a list uh, in uh, by my campaign people of who were the registered voters and who were the likely voters. And I was told, do not waste your time on people who are not going to vote. So I'd be walking down the street and there might be people sitting on their stoop. But if they weren't on the list of likely voters, I didn't talk to them. I passed them right by. And so I think EJ's point about, you know, we, we want an election system where you want to talk to everybody. Uh, I think that's really, really important. And it pained me to just walk by people. But, you know, you were trying to maximize the votes that you were going to get. And that that leads to the general point, which is right now, um, one of the things that campaigns do, all campaigns, is try to maximize your own turnout. And in the worst case scenario, minimize or suppress the turnout for your opponent. And so, you know, the more you can, as somebody quoted me, in, enrage to engage, um, you know, and just get your own voters out, the better off you'll be. But we really want a system where if everyone is going to vote, then everyone is listening and it is incumbent upon the political parties, on the campaigns, on the candidates to talk to everybody. And I think that will be a much, much healthier uh, way of, of conducting campaigns. In addition, obviously, to the savings that would be wrought by the campaigns by not having to spend, you know, gobs and gobs of money trying to turn out your voters. Not to leap on the news, but maybe some of those senators would have behaved a little better at Judge Jackson's hearing if they had to worry about the entire electorate. Well, 
there's so much there to keep going. EJ, let's, you just mentioned Judge Jackson's confirmation hearing. And of course, sadly, that's for another episode, but one passing judgment listeners that will be coming up. But I want to pick up, EJ, let's go to you with something that Miles talked about, which is the idea that he had to walk by certain places, certain eligible voters, because they weren't likely to vote. Maybe we would all agree that it is a good thing the more people that vote, the better. But as you both pointed out, not just the more people, but the more representative that group is so that we don't have a quote unquote voting class. I'm sure a term that you've both heard so often, but we have an electorate that votes that represents the people who live here. But what about the idea that one of the solutions is to change the culture, to change how candidates go about campaigning, to follow, frankly, I think the lead of a lot of people who are starting to be successful, like Congresswoman AOC, who said, I'm looking at a different electorate. So is that one way to try and solve the problem without a law that says you must? There's a famous quote from uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan that I am going to garble, I'm sure. And forgive me out there, you can look it up to get the very precise Moynihanism. But it's essentially that uh, a lot of times the culture is more important than politics, but that politics and government can alter the culture. And I think that the reason why both Miles and I found ourselves attracted to this idea is because you see in countries where this has worked especially well, Australia is one, Uruguay, by the way, one of the most successful democracies in Latin America is another. Um, What you see is that the fact that everyone is expected to vote actually itself begins to change the culture of politics by assuming that everybody is in. Uh, As Miles said, it changes the culture of campaigns uh, because you just don't engage in voter suppression anymore, either uh, formally by law or through your own campaign, uh, because you know that everybody's going to vote anyway. That alters the culture in that way. Uh, You don't have the lists that uh, we both referred to that kind of rule people out and make it a rational choice. It's not the best democratic choice, small d, but it's a rational choice to pass those voters uh, by on the street. Um, And you get voters involved in the process. One of my favorite photos of voting in Australia are four surfer dudes, uh, I think men and women, but four surfers. Um, in their wetsuits, with their surfboards next to them near Bondi Beach in Sydney, getting out of the surf to vote, uh, and then jumping back into the surf. Uh, And it sort of sends a message, yes, everybody takes this obligation um, seriously. And obviously, our proposal, as you know from the book, is accompanied by a series of what we call gateway reforms. You can't impose this requirement unless you change the system to make it easier to vote. Uh, And Australia makes it very easy to vote. They hold all their elections on Saturdays, which opens up all the public schools. Uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting Saturday, although I do think elections day as a national holiday would be a good thing. And so, yes, I'm very sympathetic to candidates who are trying to change the political culture on their own. I think this proposal 
would be a large step toward changing the culture and would probably uh, make it happen, as the case of Australia shows, a whole lot quicker. Miles, I want to get to the gateway reforms that you talk about in your book and that EJ just mentioned. First, I want to ask, I can almost hear the listeners saying, but what about? And so the but what about is, but what about the idea that some voters make a conscious decision that they're eligible? Let's assume the barriers to entry are low, but they've made a conscious decision that they do not want to vote. Why should we push them into the process. They've, assuming again, the barriers to entry are low, which is a big assumption. Isn't that a decision that's worthy of our respect? Well, I think that, uh, you know, our idea here is, again, to do a kind of light touch enforcement, not to kind of be the, the heavy hand of government here. But I think creating an expectation and a requirement that everyone is going to vote will you know, kind of create the incentive structure, both for campaigns and for voters to really make that happen. There are many, many ways, by the way, in Australia and in what we are proposing in the the book, 100% Democracy, is A, people could give all kinds of reasons why they are not voting. You know, if you get a letter afterwards saying, hey, you didn't vote, why didn't you vote? An illness, a job requirement, a conscientious objection, et cetera, all those would be acceptable reasons. And in fact, very, very few of the non-voters in Australia are ever actually uh, fined. But we also propose a none of the above solution, uh, none, none of the above choice rather on the ballot. And so if you really don't want to vote, you can abstain and give them a reason, or you can participate and not choose anyone. We're not compelling anybody to vote for or against any candidate. But I think that the idea is that you do participate. And if you want to make a protest vote, you can do so. If you want to make a point of why you're not voting, you can do so. But I think it's not the case that the reason people don't vote generally is because they choose in some sort of a principled way not to. I think there are all kinds of ways in which the incentive structure doesn't encourage voting. And I think this would, uh, as EJ said, be the way of completely flipping that script and making sure that the default position is that people are going to participate. And I want to underscore that point. You can cast a blank ballot. You can draw a cartoon character on your ballot. You can write an obscenity on your ballot. You can even say, listen to your favorite podcast on the ballot. You don't have to choose anyone. And as you know from the book, we have, thanks to some great lawyers we worked with, a whole argument of why uh, we believe you need to have that freedom to cast a blank ballot or none of the above option, uh, because the idea is constitutional if it is a conduct requirement like jury duty. We think it would probably be ruled unconstitutional if we forced you to make a choice. But in this book, uh, York, I posed your very question to a wonderful young woman who's an Australian U.S. citizen and um, as she expressed frustration about explaining Australia uh, to Americans, I'm quoting from the book and encountering, uh, Miles mentioned it, by the way, he's right, we're supposed to do that 100% democracy from the book, and encountering objections from some who viewed, as she put it, quotes, their mystical right not to vote as a form of protest. And she argued that non-participation is, and I quote again, Claire McMullen is her name, antithetical to a protest in many ways because you are further disempowering and disenfranchising yourself while arguably giving power to the loudest voices and those with the ability to further marginalize certain groups. 
I would explain again and again that I can still protest vote without removing myself from the equation. I can protest by voting for minor parties. I can protest by voting for my choice. I can protest by casting a dummy vote, which is the Australian term for handing in a blank ballot. And she goes on like that, but she, she concludes, but in every protest equation, I am participating. So yes, we want to preserve the freedom to protest, but we think that having people participate as part of that protest is uh, will further uh, democratic uh, ends. I want to remind our listeners, we're talking with E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport about their new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. It is out this month. I want to recommend it to our listeners. And I want to just thank them for indulging all of these questions. And I want to go down one more question that I know you've addressed. And Miles, I'll go to you because I think that E.J. brought this issue up before. And he said that there's indication, I heard him say, in Australia that once people are compelled to vote, that they actually do, for lack of a better way of describing it, buy into the process. And so I wanted to give you a moment to specifically address this fear that people have about low information voters, the idea that if we compel people to vote, then yes, there's the option of not voting, of a protest vote that EJ just talked about, but that there's also the possibility that we're going to get people who will just check a box because a last name sounds a certain way, it sounds like a certain background or a certain gender, or a job description sounds compelling, but not necessarily for the reasons that we want people to weigh in. So I just wanted to give you a chance to specifically address this fear of having the low information voter. The inference from what you're saying is that the distinction between people who do vote and don't vote are the people who do vote are higher information voters and the people who don't are lower information. I don't actually think that that's really the case. Um, you know, there are people who are highly motivated, but may very well be low information and people who are not motivated or feel like they you know, don't have a reason to vote, even though they're very well educated on the uh, on the issues and even on the candidates. So I think the idea, but I think that the fundamental premise that EJ and I want to work on is that is to be confident uh, in the in the in a genuine democracy, in a full and fully inclusive democracy. I do believe that people, if they are engaged in part of the system and people are talking to them and everyone knows that they have a responsibility to vote, there are indications in other countries that they do then educate themselves. But I also think that it's really important for us as a country to have the views of all of the voters and not just the people who feel strongly enough about it to vote in the current situation, which let me remind you, in a midterm election, the 2018 turnout was 50% of eligible voters. So 50%, that was a record turnout, but it's lower than many, many other countries. And it certainly doesn't make me feel like we're getting the consent of all the governed. So I think I want to trust the the ability of people to make their own decision and to, you know, inform themselves on the vote and actually come out and participate. And I think once they that is part of our culture, uh, I think people will will do it in the same way that people do jury service. No one I've never heard anybody say, gee, I, it's really an outrage that I'm forced to serve on a jury. It is part of our culture. People do it. And I think that would is, be exactly what would happen with universal voting. Yeah, I want to thank Miles for making the essential point, which is assuming that 
the electorate is less ignorant than the non-electorate. But I really hate the ignorant voters idea all the way down, because I think that is an argument against democracy. Indeed, when we were doing research on people who objected to our ideas, a lot of the firmest critics of universal voting are also pretty critical of democracy itself and are critical of voters. We have faith in democracy, which means we have faith in the broad electorate, the electorate that includes everybody. There is an impressive political science literature from V.O. Key's classic book, The Responsible Electorate, to Sam Popkin's more recent book, The Reasoning Voters, that argues that voters are more rational in their choices than democracy's critics uh, suggest. Um, and as Miles said, when people know that they're going to be engaged uh, they and know they have to make this choice, uh, the evidence suggests that they will seek out information, that they do take their vote uh, seriously. And that goes back to creating the culture of voting. But as I say, I, I reject the ignorant voters idea all the way down because I am a small D Democrat. Let's now transition, and Miles, I'll go back to you. I've heard both of you talk about this idea of gateway reforms. It's something that's in the book, 100% Democracy. And I'm hoping that you can maybe uh, lay some of them out for our listeners and talk about what are these initial steps that you want our country to take? Well, this is an easy question for me because I've spent the last 40 years of my working career uh, trying to expand the ability for people to vote and open up the access for people to vote. So there's a whole suite of reforms that I strongly believe in and, you know, will continue to work on. Uh, they include same-day voter registration, um, automatic voter registration, so that anytime you go to get your driver's license or have contact with another government agency, you're automatically registered. Um, online voter registration is another one. The restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, because many people are uh, booted out of the system if they have a felony conviction. Pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. Widespread mail-in voting, which was clearly shown in the 2020 elections that it really worked. People use that option very much. Early voting, um, which 40 states now allow, which is really quite, uh, quite impressive. So I think that there is a whole group of reforms, and I have worked on them and believe in them and think they work. And they have moved the needle, uh, but I would say not nearly enough. So I think in the early conversations that EJ and I had, we said, what might we think about that would really move the needle? So not to go from 45% midterm turnout to 50% midterm, turn, midterm turnout, rather, sorry, but rather how can we really get close to genuinely full participation? And we discovered that in 25 countries around the world, uh, not just including Australia and Uruguay, but Brazil, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, Greece, many others, this system has tried and the system works. So I think all of those reforms are important. I think we should move them. But I think our idea here is to kind of put out a stake in the ground or a North Star reform that says unequivocally and confidently, we want everyone to participate. And we think as a society, that's a huge value a value enough for it to be a requirement in the same way we make jury service requirement. That is not to disparage or, you know, kind of discount any of those other reforms, but I think we, it's time that we could take it even a step further. EJ, I'll go to you next. I can hear some people saying we can't even get basic voter rights legislation passed in this country. And you listed a number of things, which personally 
I would be 100% in favor of. Let's just, again, reduce the barriers to entry. Let's make sure that people are who they are when they vote and that they're living in the same district to the extent that it matters which district you're voting in and you're not voting in a statewide or federal election. But the idea that pre-registration, I'm going to give a shout out to an organization I know and love, the Civics Center. They're doing great job working with high school students to say, we want you to be part of this process. But we can do things like that in California. We don't seem to be able to, I'll use Miles's words, move the needle when it comes to what seems to be so desperately needed, which is federal voting rights protection. How can we kind of play this forward and see this as something that could be implemented? Could it be federal level? Are we seeing this more um, realistically a state by state? Could you walk us through that? Yeah, let me just first say, and I'm glad you raised it, both Miles and I very strongly support uh, the provisions of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And uh, as you might know, in my column, I've written quite passionately on why Congress should still pass those and how disappointed I was that they didn't get through the Senate. And I still think they need to happen. Um, what we are proposing here is, uh, we know this is a long battle, but there are many ideas that were deemed radical that we now take for granted. Think of our own republic, where at the very beginning of the republic, uh, the only people with the right to vote were white men with property. And over the long history of the republic, uh, we made it more democratic. We gradually expanded voting to men without property. And then for a while after Reconstruction, uh, we expanded the ballot to black men. And then it was taken away in the South in the backlash against Reconstruction, uh, which has some similarities to what's happening now, but that's for another day. Then we gave the ballot to women. And finally, uh, we restored voting rights to black Americans. So we've struggled for reform for a long time, but let's take very particular ideas we note that there's another idea we got from Australia that was not a common idea. It seems strange to Americans. It was the secret ballot. The secret ballot was an innovation. Ballots used to be printed by political parties or party newspapers, and you would cast your ballot in public for the party of your choice. Um, and Australia experimented in its states with the secret ballot, and it eventually became uh, the norm in the United States. By the way, in 100% Democracy, we have a footnote to a wonderful Jill Lepore piece in The New Yorker about the secret ballot, if anybody's interested in that history. Um, what we believe with this idea uh, is we know it's not going to be adopted uh, tomorrow morning. Indeed, this may be the only book anyone ever wrote that includes polling that shows clearly that a majority of Americans are right now against our idea. Um, you know, we found uh, 26% endorsed it, which I actually thought was pretty good for an idea that no one's ever pushed systematically. Um, they're about 48% strongly opposed. To us, that means, yeah, we got work to do, but it also means we look at these polls and see that about half of Americans are at least already open to persuasion. And the same polling found that 61% of Americans do see voting uh, as both a right and a duty. So on the fundamental, we have majority agreement. 
And then we talk about a lot of strategies where this could be adopted in states uh, first uh, to try it out. Uh, This could be adopted by localities. There are about 13 states that give localities quite a lot of room for innovation in their local elections. And we're already seeing that kind of thing happen with other ideas. Uh, The idea of instant runoffs, transferable votes, that's being was used in New York City in the recent mayor's primary. It was used. It's now used in Maine. Um, We've seen ideas like um, Election Day voting. Uh, that was an unusual idea that Miles worked very hard for, election day registration, rather, that is now become much more common. So you start somewhere. We would start in a number of states and localities and have this concept prove its worth. Let me just uh, add in, Jessica, you know, I, yes. can, uh, I, I totally agree with what uh, EJ has to say. And I think, you know, we're not naive in thinking, wow, this is something that Congress should take up and, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. This is a long, uh, we're, we're beginning a long journey, uh, but we want, we want to get the idea out into public discussion. And thank you for helping us to do so. Um, but then I do think that in the, in the classic uh, phrase of states and localities being laboratories of democracy, we think there'll be some places where some people will say, you know, let's give this a try. Um, and we think that it'll show its merit if it is adopted and, uh, and spread. So I think it's an organizing proposition. We want to get it out into the public debate. We want organizations who are working on these democracy issues to really consider making it part of their agenda. And I do think that there will be state legislators and municipal officials who will see a real value in having absolutely everyone in their locality, in their districts participating. So I think this is definitely going to be a kind of ground up effort and progress. And by the way, bills to adopt this idea have been introduced in the Connecticut and Massachusetts legislatures. I, we have the Connecticut bill as an appendix in our book, just to show somebody's tried this. And if you'll forgive me, I'm particularly proud of the Connecticut bill because the state senator who introduced it, Will Haskell, is actually a former student of mine. And that's not why he introduced the bill, but I'm very proud that he's a former student of mine. (laughs) Those are really delightful moments when we get to see our former students who uh, go out into the world and do interesting and important things. And in fact, in this case, something so close to your work. And so I just want to remind our listeners, we're talking about the book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And we've talked a little bit about the laws behind voting and the importance of voting in our representative democracy. Of course, it's the right that leads to other rights, as I talked about in my constitutional law class just last night. And the right to vote, I think somewhat surprisingly for some people, is defined actually in a negative way in our constitution, meaning that we know it's there because there are limits on it. So there's the idea in the voting rights amendments, don't tread on it based on race, the 15th amendment, sex, the 19th amendment, you know, the ability to pay a poll tax, the 24th amendment, or if you're over the age of 18. But of course the constitution saying don't tread on the right to vote is very different from law saying you must. And so I know that you've both mentioned this briefly, but Miles, I'll go to you. Are there any legal impediments to this proposal, assuming that there is that space for a blank, basically a, I don't want to, I don't want to weigh in. I'm here. uh, I'm compelled to be here, 
but I'm not going to check a box for a particular candidate or for a particular issue. Are there any legal challenges that we should be thinking about? Well, as, as EJ mentioned before, uh, you know, we had a whole real uh, terrific group of constitutional lawyers who have looked at this very thoroughly. And, you know, uh, undoubtedly, if it were passed anywhere, it would face a legal challenge. But we're confident that it would stand up to any kind of constitutional scrutiny because, um, you know, it is not uh, an impingement on people's ability to speak or not to speak. It is simply saying you must participate, but you can say and participate in whatever way you want, including none of the above and including giving a reason for not doing so. So I think that the interesting thing will be the federal government could certainly enact this for federal elections. States can clearly enact this for state elections. And by the way, if the federal government were to enact it, uh, you know, as a former secretary of state, I know that, you know, the states would conform themselves to the new federal requirement. Uh, and hopefully once the states start to adopt it, the federal government will look at it in a different way. Uh, in municipalities, which in some ways are the most likely place for this to start, there is the issue of uh, municipalities generally being viewed constitutionally as creatures of the state. And so in many of the states, and it varies from state to state, as EJ also mentioned, but in many of the states, you would need some form of enabling legislation or home rule legislation. But my hope would be that some municipalities take the plunge, think about it seriously, and then that the states allow them to do it. And I think once it takes hold, even in a few places, the value of it will start to be shown. So yes, there will certainly be legal challenges. There will certainly be political um, you know, conflict over it. But we think it's an idea which has proven itself for 100 years in Australia and which would prove itself if it were enacted here. EJ, can I talk to you about, I think, a burning question that a lot of people have, which is, let's say we implement it, we're past the legal thresholds, and now we're almost all, if not all, voting. How does it change voting outcomes? Which types of candidates are we electing more or less? What type of ballot measures uh, on the statewide level are we approving or disapproving? Could you talk to us about how this would play out? Could I just for uh, 30 seconds to go back to the earlier question, because I think your legal audience will really enjoy, I think, they may agree or disagree with it, but they'll enjoy our chapter on the constitutional issue. And here I do want to shout out our lawyers, Allegra Chapman, uh, lawyers and academics, Allegra Chapman, uh, Josh Douglas, Cecily Hines, Brenda Wright, who played a particular role uh, in writing this chapter with us. Um, where um, they really went very deep into the court cases on uh, uh, the right, the government's ability to compel conduct. And uh, just one quote from the Southern California Law Review by uh, uh, Sean uh, Matzler, who noted that, quote, since no clear meaning can be ascribed to the none of the above option, it is not communicative under the Spence v. Washington decision, another Supreme Court uh, case and therefore not a valid subject of constitutional protection. Uh, we have tried to write our own proposal, very conscious of the case law in this uh, area. In terms of how this might change the electorate, one of the points that I am going to want to underscore as we make our case for this um, is that there is no guarantee that this will just elect liberals or Democrats. There is this widespread assumption that a bigger electorate will automatically 
uh, elect more Democrats, and uh, that's why these guys are for it. Um, a couple of things about that. Uh, in Australia, conservative parties have actually won more elections in the last 40 or 50 years than uh, the Labour Party has. Conservatives have done just fine under this idea. Indeed, the initial push for compulsory voting came from the conservative side of the Australian uh, political system because they were worried about how well organized the unions supporting the Labour Party were. And the Labour Party went along with it because they thought they could do just fine under this system. Um, I think that if you look at our current turnout, uh, you would get uh, more younger voters. It would make the electorate younger, which I think is a good thing. It would probably increase both the number of racial minorities, but also the number of working class people generally. One of the points we make in our book is if you look at the 2020 election and people were surprised that Donald Trump's vote went up and that Republicans picked up a bunch of House seats, it's actually because there was an increase in the white working class vote. We think this would increase um, the working class vote and the minority vote, uh, working class vote of all colors uh, and the minority vote, and then racial and ethnic minorities. Um, lastly, it would almost certainly increase the number of voters, uh, proportion of voters who are not ideologues. Uh, the evidence suggests from Australia and elsewhere that the uh, people, the new people it brings in to the electorate are not as ideological, which we don't think is a bad thing either, that I think it would encourage candidates of very strong views uh, to appeal to a broader electorate. And it might uh, put a lid on um, certain kinds of extremism that we're seeing in our country right now. I have a Republican friend who's for this idea, even though he'll never endorse it because he thinks it will make his party more moderate. Uh, and I think this would have a moderating effect on our uh, uh, on our elections. Miles, I'm going to go to you for an issue that I know you've thought about for decades, which is money in politics and campaign finance. And you talked a little bit about the cost of campaigning and the cost of trying to get people out to vote. And you mentioned that you know this would eliminate the cost of trying to get people out to vote. But would it increase the cost of campaigns in other ways, in the sense that you have to reach a much broader electorate, or you have to reach a lot more people to try and get them to vote for you or vote for your cause or vote against your opponent? So are there ways in which we should be mindful of the campaign finance implications here? Well, I thought you were going to ask a slightly different question, which I'll answer very quickly. And that is to say that, you know, this does not solve the campaign finance uh, problem uh, in the United States at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, no individual reform, uh, including uh, universal voting, is going to magically snap our fingers and make our democracy healthy. I think we have a major problem with how we finance elections. Again, we're uh, much of an outlier uh, with other countries, and I'm strongly supportive of campaign finance reform. Uh, you know, it's an interesting question about whether this would make campaigns more expensive. You know, television advertising, for instance, wouldn't change. It would only change how much money you're wasting by uh, broadcasting to people who are not going to vote. Um, probably it would be uh, up your printing costs and your and some other costs. So yes, it might increase the cost 
a little bit, but I think the savings, because so much of the cost of campaigns is in turning out your voters and just constantly going back and going back and going back and making sure that every one of your voters votes. So I think there would be a lot of different cost implications that probably might cancel each other out. Um, but I really think that, uh, you know, um, you know, that that's not the big issue that, uh, uh, you know, a big problem. I do think this, by the way, that it, I think it would also, it would increase the cost of election administration, but that would be a great thing. I mean, one of the problems that we have in our democracy is that elections in and of themselves and election administration, uh, you know, are vastly underfunded. The Brennan Center estimated that it was, there were $4 billion needed to, you know, make all the adjustments in the campaign of 2020, Congress appropriated 400 million. Uh, state after state uh, elections are are vastly underfunded. I think we need a good, robust, nonpartisan, nonpolitical election administration. And if that comes into being in order to implement a universal voting system, that would be great in my book. In my book, actually, yeah. <laughs> Actually, in your book, which we'll mention one more time, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting, it is now out. And EJ and Miles, I've loved this conversation. I'm going to end actually by a throwback to something that we used to do regularly on the podcast, which is to ask our guests something completely unrelated to the reason that we had them on. And so I'll ask you the same question. And EJ, I'll start with you. Any person dead or alive that you would like to invite to a dinner party and why? And it does not have to have anything to do with voting. Ooh, that's a very hard one. Can I try three? The first three that came to my mind were Lincoln, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. So those were the first three who came to my head. I will allow three miles to you. Okay. Well, I really would like to have a conversation with Dr. King. That would be an immensely uh, satisfying experience. And I think I'll add Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to that. So I really <laughs> want to have dinner with her now after what she's been through. Anyway, I have lots and lots of people that I would like to do, but uh, those two stand out for me. Miles, by the time you schedule that dinner, I think it will be Justice Kentaji Brown Jackson. That's my guess, but uh, the three of us can have that discussion another time. I agree. <laughs> and again, I want to thank EJ Dion and Miles Rappaport for talking to us about their new book, 100% Democracy The Case for Universal Voting. It is available for purchase now. Miles and EJ, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us on. I want to take your class, but in lieu of that, I'm going to listen to your podcast. Well, flattered, and I will have you on as a, um, a guest speaker instead. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoy these conversations. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. And we wish everybody a great day.